This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Test Tube, Le Show, TED Talks, Redacted Tonight, On the Media, Radio Dispatch, Activism from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and Laura Flanders from Great TV. If the reports about the NSA's programs aren't being exaggerated, then our national security agency is the closest thing to Big Brother the world has ever seen. Even if the reports are being overstated by just half, the NSA's surveillance measures are still well beyond what we thought possible even 15 years ago. So what happened? How did the NSA get so powerful? Well, the NSA stems from agencies that we created in order to collect information about foreign nations during World War I and World War II. They collected communications intelligence, initially radio signals, and then as technology advanced, electronic intelligence. Then, in the Cold War, those two types of intelligence were combined into one new term, SIGINT, or signal intelligence. That is what the NSA works on collecting today, SIGINT, and it's an extremely broad term. It basically covers any form of communication collected in any way. If you sent it out and they can get it, it's considered SIGINT. So right off the bat, the edges of what information the NSA can and cannot look at aren't even definable. It could be anything. Also not defined is what the NSA has done and is currently doing. The NSA was formed by President Harry Truman in one paragraph at the bottom of a classified seven-page memorandum. Initially, even the name of the agency itself was classified. According to the memorandum, the NSA was established to provide an effective, unified organization and control of the communications intelligence activities of the United States conducted against foreign governments. In other words, it exists to spy on foreign governments. The first time the public became aware of the NSA was during a Senate investigation in 1975, and even then they admitted to spying on American citizens. So the foreign government thing may not have ever been taken all that seriously. This first incident was during the Vietnam War when the NSA was investigating members of the anti-war movement, people like Martin Luther King Jr., to see if they had any connections to foreign criminals abroad. The NSA had admitted that they were spying on U.S. citizens, but he also noted that the spying was working. It made our country more secure. Congress was alarmed by the NSA's disregard for civil rights, but they couldn't deny how effective it was. Still, something had to be done. Congress wrote and passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. FISA established a secret court that could issue the NSA warrants for wiretaps and, when necessary, allow surveillance to begin before the warrant had been issued. According to many critics, it was basically Congress's way of saying, keep up the good work, guys. If you need anything, just let us know that you already got it. And all of this was before the terrorist attacks on 9-11. After 9-11, the Bush administration asked the NSA to take a bigger role in counterterrorism. So the NSA started pushing their surveillance and information gathering even further. First, they started tracking calls to and from any nation with suspected terrorists, including calls to and from the U.S., and then they moved on to emails and Internet metadata. From there, they started working with phone and tech companies to get direct access to their servers for limited surveillance and searches, but shortly after, they pretty much gave up the formalities and started taking all the data they could from these companies. Now they're monitoring 193 other nations worldwide, as well as millions of U.S. citizens, all in the name of keeping us safe. When would you want to release important information to get the most attention to it by the uh, interested and possibly even not interested public? How about Christmas Eve? How about releasing it Christmas Eve? Who would do who would do such a dastardly thing? Who would who would make something public but really not public by releasing it on the National Security Agency. It released reports on intelligence collection that may 
may have violated the law or U.S. policy over more than a decade, including unauthorized surveillance of Americans' overseas communications. Responding to a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit from the ACLU, the NSA released a series of required quarterly and annual reports to the President's Intelligence Oversight Board, heavily redacted reports that include examples of data on Americans being emailed to unauthorized recipients stored in unsecured computers and retained after it was supposed to be destroyed. Posted on the NSA's website, 1.30 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Now, I'm just going to hope that they had it set on auto-post, that it didn't have some poor schmuck there actually working on Christmas Eve. In a 2012 case, an NSA analyst searched her spouse's personal telephone directory without his knowledge to obtain names and telephone numbers for targeting, according to one report. The analyst, quote, has been advised to cease her activities. Unquote. It sort of puts a bit in the shade an assurance that was given us by the president as the year turned from 2013 to 2014, an assurance that NSA's investigative programs, which had been revealed by Edward Snowden starting in the summer of 2013, that those powers were never abused. Well, our own destructions by the powers in this world Keep people locked up under control If not much to say, well, not much for them to say Not much for them to say, not, not much for them to say There's a media where they pump bad news They're terrorists and killer bees on the loose Where they promulgate fear and promote abuse So you won't leave your house In fact, you better stay tuned But there's not much to say The shocking police crackdown on protesters in Ferguson, Missouri, in the wake of the police shooting of Michael Brown, underscored the extent to which advanced military weapons and equipment designed for the battlefield are making their way to small-town police departments across the United States. Although much tougher to observe, the same thing is happening with surveillance equipment. NSA-style mass surveillance is enabling local police departments to gather vast quantities of sensitive information about each and every one of us in a way that was never previously possible. Location information can be very sensitive. If you drive your car around the United States, it can reveal if you go to a therapist, attend an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, if you go to church or if you don't go to church. And when that information about you is combined with the same information about everyone else, the government can gain a detailed portrait of how private citizens interact. This information used to be private. Thanks to modern technology, the government knows far too much about what happens behind closed doors, and local police departments make decisions about who they think you are based on this information. One of the key technologies driving mass location tracking is the innocuous-sounding automatic license plate reader. If you haven't seen one, it's probably because you didn't know what to look for. They're everywhere, mounted on roads or on police cars. Automatic license plate readers capture images of every passing car and convert the license plate into machine-readable text so that they can be checked against hot lists of uh, cars potentially wanted for wrongdoing. But more than that, increasingly, local police departments are keeping records not just of people wanted for wrongdoing, but of every plate that passes them by, resulting in the collection of mass quantities of data about where Americans have gone. Did you know this was happening? When Mike Katz-Lakabe asked his local police department for information about the plate reader data they had on him, This is what they got. In addition to the date, time, and location, the police department had photographs that captured where he was going and often who he was with. The second photo from the top is a picture of Mike and his two daughters getting out of their car in their own driveway. The government has hundreds of photos like this about Mike going about his daily life, 
And if you drive a car in the United States, I would bet money that they have photographs uh, like this of you going about your daily life. Mike hasn't done anything wrong. Why is it okay that the government is keeping all of this information? The reason it's happening is because as the cost of storing this data has plummeted, uh, the police departments simply hang on to it just in case it could be useful someday. The issue is not just that one police department is gathering this information in isolation or even that multiple police departments are doing it. At the same time, the federal government is collecting all of these individual pots of data and pooling them together into one vast database with hundreds of millions of hits showing where Americans have traveled. This document from the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration, which is one of the agencies primarily interested in this, is one of several that reveal the existence of this database. Meanwhile, in New York City, the NYPD has driven police cars equipped with license plate readers past mosques in order to figure out who is attending. The uses and abuses of this technology aren't limited to the United States. In the UK, the police department put 80-year-old John Catt on a plate reader watch list after he had attended dozens of lawful political demonstrations where he liked to sit on a bench and sketch the attendees. License plate readers aren't the only mass location tracking technology available to law enforcement agents today. Through a technique known as a cell tower dump, law enforcement agents can uncover who uh, was using one or more cell towers at a particular time, a technique which has been known to reveal the location of tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of people. Also, using a device known as a stingray, law enforcement agents can send tracking signals inside people's houses to identify the cell phones located there. And if they don't know which house to target, they've been known to drive this technology around through whole neighborhoods. Just as the police in Ferguson possess high-tech military weapons and equipment, so too do police departments across the United States possess high-tech surveillance gear. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. The question is, what should we do about this? I think this poses a serious civil liberties threat. History has shown that once the police have massive quantities of data tracking the movements of innocent people, it gets abused, uh, maybe for blackmail, maybe for political advantage, or maybe for simple voyeurism. Fortunately, there are steps we can take. Local police departments uh, can be governed by the city councils, which can pass laws requiring the police uh, to dispose of the data about innocent people while allowing the legitimate uses of the technology to go forward. Squarespace is the online platform that lets anyone build professional websites and online portfolios. And if you know anything about anything, then you'll know the truism that content is king. If you want people to take your website seriously, you've got to put something worthwhile on there and make it look good. Now, the content is up to you, of course, but making it look good is easy with Squarespace. They've always had a focus on design, but in just the last year, they've introduced 15 new templates, a partnership with Getty Images, perfect for finding beautiful pictures for your site, and a partnership with The Noun Project, perfect for finding great icons and decals for your site. Plus, they made a logo builder so you can create your own unique logo for your site. Their full list of features is shockingly long, so almost no matter what you need, in a website, Squarespace will have you covered, and it'll look good doing it. Check it out for yourself with a 14-day free trial, no credit card necessary. Then, when you're ready to make the move permanent, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT at checkout. That's just L-E-F-T, which gets you 10% off your purchase, and that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. It's the all-in-one platform, makes it fast and easy to create. You can start with 20 highly customizable This is FBI Director James Comey. 
He's got a problem with tech companies like Apple and Google that are now offering encrypted phones, keeping their users' private phone data so secure that even Apple and Google themselves can't get in, let alone the NSA or James Comey's FBI. And as Comey can tell us, privacy is a grave national threat. Encryption threatens to lead us all to a very, very dark place. The notion that the marketplace could create something that would prevent the closet from ever being opened, even with a properly obtained court order, makes no sense to me. Now, there is no lock that can keep the FBI out of a closet. But encryption basically allows users to create a locked digital closet on their phones and on their computers. For example, Apple specifically warns users not to forget their password, or else all their data will be lost forever. Luckily for me, I keep my password written on a tiny piece of paper in my sock. So as I damn it, my mom washed my socks again. Told her not to. This, this is useless now. Still, the government is very uncomfortable with this type of personal security. Snowden revelations show that the NSA tried to weaken encryption. Current law governing the interception of communications requires that telecommunications carriers and broadband providers build interception capabilities into their networks for court-ordered surveillance. Comey is referring to the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, known as CALEA, a law that was passed in 1996 when people were still using hamburger phones. And while the law did require telecom companies to build networks easily monitored by law enforcement, it also specifically allowed encryption. In other words, this debate was settled 20 years ago, and Congress said yes, giving consumers encrypted products that no one can break into is totally cool. And it's totally cool because building a back door for the FBI to break encryption means you've also built a back door for anyone else, from foreign hackers to horny fappers. There is a misconception that building a lawful intercept solution is all about building a backdoor, one that foreign adversaries or hackers could exploit. That also is not true. We want to use the front door with clarity and transparency. Oh. Well, in that case, that sounds reasonable. But it's still a door, right? And isn't the door itself the problem? What are you envisioning when you talk about building in a front door lawful intercept decryption capability? Yeah, I don't think I'm smart enough to give you a, a highly reliable answer there. Well, judging by that answer, he probably can't explain the back door either. What? That's what who said? Who's she? I don't understand. That's what who said? I don't understand what... In the end, the question law enforcement struggles with is, why? Why on earth would innocent people turn to encryption to secure their devices? It's not like these federal agencies have abused their surveillance powers, but Comey disagrees. I suggest that it's time that the post-Snowden pendulum be seen as having swung too far in one direction. In the direction of one of those dystopic futures you read about in scary novels. A world in which the right to encrypt is protected, and individuals stalk the streets carrying their secure personal data on smartphones that the government can't access, forcing police to respect your right to live your life. And when that happens, maybe we'll all regret not giving James Comey access to all our back doors. Reporting what? That's what who said? Who's she? I don't understand. You keep saying that. Who's she? That doesn't... I start, ah. From Washington, D.C., Sam Sachs, redacted tonight.
And now on to something that touches us all, or most of us, problems at the workplace. Let's say you have unease at work because your coworkers and bosses are driving you crazy. Where do you turn? Well, at one outfit in suburban Maryland, they can turn to Zelda, the advice columnist on the company Intranet. Zelda is anonymous not only because she's a coworker herself, but because she works for the National Security Agency. Yes, she is dear Abby. For spooks, Zelda's very existence was secret until it was revealed in the Edward Snowden leak and made public by the Intercept, the new investigative reporting site where Glenn Greenwald now works. Peter Moss wrote the story after reading Zelda's columns. Each one of these columns addresses a problem that you would see addressed in a, in a Dilbert cartoon. There's the employee who's mad because somebody is stealing his or her sodas from the communal fridge. There's somebody who's mad because an office mate smells. There's a complaint about somebody who speaks too loudly, about somebody who walks right next to their friend in the hallway, making it difficult for other people to pass by. There really is no bar too banal for the complaints at the NSA. But some of these complaints are so thick with irony. That it's just delicious. Can you give me some examples? A lot of these complaints were about people at the NSA being spied on, and they didn't <laughs> like it and thought something should be done about it. Yeah, can you read me、uh, a passage? My favorite was written by somebody who referred to himself or herself as silenced. In SID, SID refers to the Signals Intelligence Directorate, which is the heart of the beast of the NSA, the place where the the major Surveillance operations occur, and the column was headlined "Watching Every Word in Snitch City." Dear Zelda, when the boss sees coworkers having a quiet conversation, he wants to know what is being said. It's mostly work-related. He has his designated snitches and expects them to keep him apprised of all the office gossip, even calling them at home and expecting a rundown. We're all afraid any offhand comment or anything said in confidence. Might be either repeated or misrepresented. Needless to say, this creates a certain amount of tension between team members who normally would get along well and add stress in an already stressful atmosphere. It ended this way with this paragraph: "This was once a very open, cooperative group who worked well together. Now we're more suspicious of each other, and teamwork is becoming harder." Do you think this was the goal? And it's signed, silenced in SID. <laughs> The reason that it's so funny to hear that, of course, is because all you have to do is take out the words "workers" and put in "citizens," and take out the word "bosses" and put in the word "government," and you could be talking about the toll of the surveillance state, right? Absolutely. There were several letters and responses from Zelda that were on this topic. Her responses indicated that she really did think privacy was pretty darn important, and I really do not know whether she was choosing these letters with this underlying agenda, or whether indeed she was just talking about the NSA workplace. In other words, you can't tell whether she just can't recognize the obvious irony, or really quite subversive, criticizing the agency right in plain view. I guess, like so many things at the NSA. We really don't know exactly what's up. What we do know is her responses could be allegories for the nation, the world at large, because she responds to that one letter by saying, "Wow, that takes intelligence collection in a whole new and inappropriate direction." We work in an agency of secrets, but this kind of secrecy begets more secrecy and becomes a downward spiral that destroys teamwork. What if you put an end to all the secrecy by bringing it out in the open? She said, "Trust is hard to rebuild once it has been broken." Okay, now I have to ask you a question here, Peter. Are you so suspicious and so angry about violations of civil liberties that you are looking for deeper meaning in a story which is just kind of quirky and cute? Of course,、uh, you know I'm a journalist, and I think lots of journalists are angry and suspicious. But hopefully, self-aware enough to know that there's a difference between what you think and what you know. I don't know, you know, what Zelda was 
trying to say, whether it was a broader message she was trying to send out or not. All I know is that what she did say was deeply ironic. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you. Peter Moss wrote about Ask Zelda for The Intercept. Dear Zelda, some coworkers and I have been exchanging messages that we up until recently believed to be private. In these messages, we said some embarrassing things about mutual acquaintances, including comparing one female coworker to Teflon and another pair of upper-level managers to Batman and Robin. Unfortunately, these messages weren't private at all. Someone posted them onto NSA Net, frowny emoticon. Now everyone hates me and my coworkers. What can we do to make people like us again? Who hasn't done something like this? It's mortifying when it happens, but once it's out there, the damage is done. In time, people will forget it and move on. The best way to make people like you is to not say unflattering things about them in the first place and never put them in writing. That would be a good New Year's resolution for us all. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentary. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. There is an entire genre of YouTube videos devoted to an experience which I am certain that everyone in this room has had. It entails an individual who, thinking they're alone, engages in some expressive behavior, wild singing, gyrating dancing, some mild sexual activity, only to discover that, in fact, they are not alone, that there is a person watching and lurking, the discovery of which causes them to immediately cease what they're doing in horror. The sense of shame and humiliation in their face is palpable. It's the sense of, this is something I'm willing to do only if no one else is watching. This is the crux of the work on which I have been singularly focused for the last 16 months, the question of why privacy matters, a question that has arisen in the context of a global debate enabled by the revelations of Edward Snowden that the United States and its partners, unbeknownst to the entire world, has converted the Internet, once heralded as an unprecedented tool of liberation and democratization, into an unprecedented zone of mass indiscriminate surveillance. There is a very common sentiment that arises in this debate, even among people who are uncomfortable with mass surveillance, which says that there's no real harm that comes from this large-scale invasion because only people who are engaged in bad acts have a reason to want to hide and to care about their privacy. This worldview is implicitly grounded in the proposition that there are two kinds of people in the world, good people and bad people. Bad people are those who plot terrorist attacks or who engage in violent criminality and therefore have reasons to want to hide what they're doing, have reasons to care about their privacy. But by contrast, good people are people who go to work, come home, raise their children, watch television. They use the Internet not to plot bombing attacks, but to read the news or exchange recipes or to plan their kids' Little League games. And those people are doing nothing wrong and therefore have nothing to hide and no reason to fear the government monitoring them. The people who are actually saying that are engaged in a very extreme act of self-deprecation. What they're really saying is, I have agreed to make myself such a harmless and unthreatening and uninteresting person that I actually don't fear having the government know what it is that I'm doing. 
This mindset has found what I think is its purest expression in a 2009 interview with the longtime CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, who, when asked about all the different ways his company is causing invasions of privacy for hundreds of millions of people around the world, said this. He said, if you're doing something that you don't want other people to know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Now, there's all kinds of things to say about that mentality. The first of which is that the people who say that, who say that privacy isn't really important, they don't actually believe it. And the way you know that they don't actually believe it is that while they say with their words that privacy doesn't matter, with their actions they take all kinds of steps to safeguard their privacy. They put passwords on their email and their social media accounts. They put locks on their bedroom and bathroom doors, all steps designed to prevent other people from entering what they consider their private realm and knowing what it is that they don't want other people to know. The very same Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, ordered his employees at Google to cease speaking with the online internet magazine CNET after CNET published an article full of personal private information about Eric Schmidt which it obtained exclusively through Google searches and using other Google products. <laughs> this same division can be seen with the CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, who in an infamous interview in 2010, pronounced that privacy is no longer a, quote, social norm. Last year, Mark Zuckerberg and his new wife purchased not only their own house, but also all four adjacent houses in Palo Alto for a total of $30 million in order to ensure that they enjoyed a zone of privacy that prevented other people from monitoring what they do in their personal lives. Over the last 16 months, as I've debated this issue around the world, every single time somebody has said to me, I don't really worry about invasions of privacy because I don't have anything to hide, I always say the same thing to them. I get out a pen, I write down my email address, I say, here's my email address. What I want you to do when you get home is email me the passwords to all of your email accounts. Not just the nice, respectable work one in your name, but all of them because I want to be able to just troll through what it is you're doing online, read what I want to read, and publish whatever I find interesting. After all, if you're not a bad person, if you're doing nothing wrong, you should have nothing to hide. Not a single person has taken me up on that offer. <laughs> I, I, checked, I, I checked that email account religiously all the time. It's a very desolate place. And there's a reason for that, which is that we as human beings, even those of us who in words disclaim the importance of our own privacy, instinctively understand the profound importance of it. It is true that as human beings we're social animals, which means we have a need for other people to know what we're doing and saying and thinking, which is why we voluntarily publish information about ourselves online. But equally essential to what it means to be a free and fulfilled human being is to have a place that we can go and be free of the judgmental eyes of other people. There's a reason why we seek that out, and that reason is, is that all of us, not just terrorists and criminals, all of us have things to hide. There are all sorts of things that we do and think that we're willing to tell our physician or our lawyer or our psychologist or our spouse or our best friend that we would be mortified for the rest of the world to learn. We make judgments every single day about the kinds of things that we say and think and do that we're willing to have other people know and the kinds of things that we say and think and do that we don't want anyone else to know about. People can very easily in words claim that they don't value their privacy, but their actions negate the authenticity of that belief. Now, there's a reason why privacy is so craved universally and instinctively. It isn't just a reflexive movement like breathing air or drinking water. The reason is, is that when we're in a state where we can be monitored, where we can be watched, our behavior changes dramatically. The range of behavioral options that we consider when we think we're being watched severely reduce. This is just a fact of human nature that has been recognized in social science and in literature and in religion and in virtually every field of discipline. There are dozens of psychological studies that prove that when somebody knows that they might be watched, the behavior they engage in is vastly more conformist and compliant. 
Human shame is a very powerful motivator, as is the desire to avoid it. And that's the reason why people, when they're in a state of being watched, make decisions, not that are the byproduct of their own agency, but that are about the expectations that others have of them, or the mandates of societal orthodoxy. This realization was exploited most powerfully for pragmatic ends by the 18th century philosopher Jeremy Bentham, who set out to resolve an important problem ushered in by the industrial age, where for the first time institutions had become so large and centralized that they were no longer able to monitor and therefore control each one of their individual members. And the solution that he devised was an architectural design originally intended to be implemented in prisons that he called the panopticon the primary attribute of which was the construction of an enormous tower in the center of the institution, where whoever controlled the institution could at any moment watch any of the inmates, although they couldn't watch all of them at all times. And crucial to this design was that the inmates could not actually see into the panopticon, into the tower, and so they never knew if they were being watched or even when. And what made him so excited about this discovery was that that would mean that the prisoners would have to assume that they were being watched at any given moment, which would be the ultimate enforcer for obedience and compliance. The 20th century French philosopher Michel Foucault realized that that model could be used not just for prisons, but for every institution that seeks to control human behavior, schools, hospitals, factories, workplaces. And what he said was that this mindset, this framework discovered by Bentham, was the key means of societal control for modern Western societies, which no longer need the overt weapons of tyranny, punishing or imprisoning or killing dissidents, or legally compelling loyalty to a particular party, because mass surveillance creates a prison in the mind that is a much more subtle, though much more effective means of fostering compliance with social norms or with social orthodoxy, much more effective than brute force could ever be. The most iconic work of literature about surveillance and privacy is the George Orwell novel 1984, which we all learn in school, and therefore it's almost become a cliché. In fact, whenever you bring it up in a debate about surveillance, people instantaneously dismiss it as inapplicable. And what they say is, oh, well, in 1984 there were monitors in people's homes, they were being watched at every given moment, and that has nothing to do with the surveillance state that we face. That is an actual fundamental misapprehension of the warnings that Orwell issued in 1984. The warning that he was issuing was about a surveillance state, not that monitored everybody at all times, but where people were aware that they could be monitored at any given moment. Here is how Orwell's narrator, Winston Smith, described the surveillance system that they faced. Quote, there was, of course, no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any given moment. He went on to say, at any rate, they could plug in your wire whenever they wanted to. You had to live, did live, from habit that became instinct, in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard, and except in darkness, every movement scrutinized. The Abrahamic religions similarly posit that there's an invisible, all-knowing authority who, because of its omniscience, always watches whatever you're doing, which means you never have a private moment, the ultimate enforcer for obedience to its dictates. What all of these seemingly disparate works recognize, the conclusion that they all reach, is that a society in which people can be monitored at all times is a society that breeds conformity and obedience and submission, which is why every tyrant, the most overt to the most subtle, craves that system. Conversely, even more importantly, it is a realm of privacy, the ability to go somewhere where we can think and reason and interact and speak without the judgmental eyes of others being cast upon us, in which creativity and exploration and dissent exclusively reside. And that is the reason why when we allow a society to exist in which we're subject to constant monitoring, we allow the essence of human freedom to be severely crippled. The last point I want to observe about this mindset, the idea that only people who are doing nothing wrong have things to hide and therefore reasons to care about privacy, is that it entrenches two very destructive messages, two destructive lessons. 
The first of which is that the only people who care about privacy, the only people who will seek out privacy are by definition bad people. This is a conclusion that we should have all kinds of reasons for avoiding. The most important of which is that when you say somebody who's doing bad things, you probably mean things like plotting a terrorist attack or engaging in violent criminality, a much narrower conception of what people who wield power mean when they say doing bad things. For them, doing bad things typically means doing something that poses meaningful challenges to the exercise of our own power. The other really destructive and I think even more insidious lesson that comes from accepting this mindset is there's an implicit bargain that people who accept this mindset have accepted. And that bargain is this. If you're willing to render yourself sufficiently harmless, sufficiently unthreatening to those who wield political power, then and only then can you be free of the dangers of surveillance. It's only those who are dissidents, who challenge power, who have something to worry about. There are all kinds of reasons why we should want to avoid that lesson as well. You may be a person who right now doesn't want to engage in that behavior, but at some point in the future you might. Even if you're somebody who decides you never want to, the fact that there are other people who are willing to and able to resist and be adversarial to those in power, dissidents and journalists and activists and a whole range of others, is something that brings us all collective good that we should want to preserve. Equally critical is that the measure of how free a society is, is not how it treats its good, obedient, compliant citizens, but how it treats its dissidents and those who resist orthodoxy. But the most important reason is that a system of mass surveillance suppresses our own freedom in all sorts of ways. It renders off limits all kinds of behavioral choices without our even knowing that it's happened. The renowned socialist activist Rosa Luxemburg once said, he who does not move does not notice his chains. We can try and render the chains of mass surveillance invisible or undetectable, but the constraints that it imposes on us do not become any less potent. And there's a camera on the corner that wants to take a picture of me. But I'm freaked out by a government that wants to invade my privacy. And the department of wiretapping wants to listen to us talk on the phone. Buy some people need to learn to worry about themselves. And leave the rest of us There's a post over at Lawfare Blog, which is, you know, we mentioned on the show before in sort of very broad terms. They, I think that they're, it's safe to say that they're conservative leaning in their legal interpretations of national security law. Just security, which is a, again, sort of vaguely speaking liberal leaning national security blog. Those two are the kind of, the, the, or two, two of the several kind of national security legal debate battlegrounds, basically. But uh, Ben Wittes over at Lawfare has a sort of refutation for Greenwald, and he says that Greenwald is asking the wrong question. Yeah, so he says, you know, so Greenwald has this challenge, you know, if you think you have nothing to hide, if you think that it's no big deal that the uh, government has the ability to, to go into all of your personal information like this, he says, well, all right, so send me your passwords and allow me to go through all your emails and publish, you know, the most embarrassing stuff and prove that you have nothing to hide. And, uh, and you know, Greenwald says, no one's ever taken me up on this offer. Uh And uh, Wittes says, basically says, that's not the question. It's not a question of whether people don't have personal things in their life that they don't want to be exposed. He says it's a question of whether you trust the authorities to do the right thing is basically what it comes down to. He says, I trust, I know, well, he says, I know that my life, that in my life, I don't have, you know, there's things that I could be embarrassed about, but I know that there's no reason for for law enforcement to, you know, break down my door and and find something that is incriminating against me. I know that I'm not doing anything like that. And and he I think he tries to sort of 
distance himself from this argument by saying, I'm not sure if this is the right argument or the wrong argument, mm. but this is that's the argument that people are making. So And so he's trying to, I think, score a sort of logical semantic victory over Greenwald by saying that Greenwald is is creating a straw man and uh-huh. Wittes is trying to expose the straw man while not necessarily adopting the reasoning that he puts forward, which I don't think is especially persuasive. I think that, that, that Wittes largely does believe what he puts forward and, and by saying that, yes, I could be embarrassed by things if you went through my email, but that doesn't mean that I don't trust the NSA to basically leave me alone and go after the baddies. It's also, I think, uh, a very ahistorical argument that he's making to say, well, there's personal things you can be embarrassed by, and then there's, like, law-breaking, and the and the law enforcement people are only going to worry about your law-breaking. Absolutely. Like, like hello, <laughs> do we yeah. remember the whole Martin Luther King FBI, FBI's effort to humiliate Martin Luther King by using his personal life, right? And, and not to mention that the FBI uses the, the information that's collected under these various programs to try to flip people into becoming informants. Right. Not only by putting them on the no-fly list and then saying, hey, you know what sucks is being on the no-fly list. If you talk to us, you could probably get off that thing. But also to use personal information to box somebody in and yeah. to try to get them to flip. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right that that this idea that there's a, a wall between embarrassing behavior and uh, criminal behavior and that, this, that the security forces won't break that wall is is completely ahistorical it's, and also like somewhat um porous right or 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 ch- it changes throughout time right like it's not too long ago to imagine like someone's sexual identity being a deeply personal and private mm-hmm. thing that could then be used to blackmail somebody you know or humiliate them right like and you could still imagine right now somebody's gender gender identity absolutely being, being that yeah i think you could still imagine sexual identity too but there's enough equality you know equality legislation maybe you could say that that people I think maybe it's easy for people to forget, like, well, how could something personal ever be used against you politically? Like, you know, how about having had an abortion? That's being used against Wendy Davis right now, you know, which she's being public about. But still, it's not, I mean, this, yeah, this dichotomy of, well, there's personal things in my email that I can be humiliated about, but, but, but it's not as if that will ever be used against me in the in terms of law enforcement, is a profoundly ahistorical argument and a profoundly privileged one. One that, you know, if you if your identity falls in the lines of, like, identities that have never been wholly marginalized, maybe it hasn't come up for you, you know? You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, prohibit mass surveillance. And for background on today's activism, I have to channel my inner Tom Hartman, and listeners of his will know what I mean, because... This is basically Ronald Reagan's fault. In 1981, President Reagan signed an executive order, number 12333, which, according to our friends over at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is, quote, the primary authority under which the country's intelligence agencies conduct the majority of their operations, unquote. This means NSA spying and mass surveillance. So, despite recent bills in Congress designed to curtail mass telephone surveillance, the NSA's primary surveillance authority has been left unchallenged. The good news is that the fix is easy and that the president seems open to using the final two years of his administration to do things unilaterally. Why it took so long to come to that conclusion is a mystery, but let's take advantage 
of it now that it's happened. The petition available at EFF.org under the Take Action tab asks for the president to reform Executive Order 12333 and issue a new order that, quote, prohibits the United States from engaging in mass surveillance and digital communications. The effects of this order have been somewhat hidden. According to PEN America's report, Global Chilling, the Impact of Mass Surveillance on International Writers, a survey of nearly 800 writers worldwide found that 75% of those living in democracies have engaged in self-censorship. Writers en masse now fear that their governments will not respect their right to privacy and freedom of expression, a seriously troubling trend. We already know far too little about our country's law enforcement agencies and programs. If this trend continues, what's left of our fourth estate watchdog press will decline even further. So sign the EFF petition titled Tell Obama Stop Mass Surveillance Under Executive Order 12333 to curb the practice and restore, at least in part, our freedom of the press. Also, please take a minute to sign the petitions in the additional activism section of today's segment notes. EFF is trying to prevent the Federal Elections Commission from adding harmful regulations to online political speech that could disproportionately impact free platforms like YouTube and therefore all of us who use YouTube content. The comment period ends this week, so time is short. There is also a petition from the ACLU urging the president to use the power of the executive order to stop mass surveillance. Privacy, security, and free speech have always existed with tension. It is our job as citizens to demand our legislators and courts maintain a balance that errs on the side of uninhibited speech that promotes free thought and democracy. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If limiting surveillance and promoting free speech matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about EFF's push for an executive order to end NSA spying via social media so that others in your network can add their voices to the cause. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. I've just spent two very different weekends in the company of two very different groups of people, dealing with two very related problems. On the one hand, invasive warrantless wiretapping. On the other, violent, unwarranted policing. The first gathering was dominated by white people, hackers, journalists, and artists concerned about surveillance, secrecy, and censorship. Their stories were hair-raising, tracked cell phones, data-driven drone strikes, prisoned whistleblowers, and all the rest. Ten days later, with the Millions March in New York, the demographics were very different. Predominantly African-American, the trigger there was police brutality and killings in communities of color, as well as official impunity in the slaughter of, among others, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, seven-year-old Ayanna Stanley Jones, 12-year-old Tamir Rice. The list keeps growing. The two groups and the two events differed, but they put me in mind of a single story, the one about feeling the elephant. You know it. In the story, a group of people who can't see very well are trying to learn what an elephant looks like by touching it. But each is feeling a different part. Is the creature mostly tusk or tummy or overwhelmingly trunk? Compiling the big picture is no simple matter, but when the touches compare notes, it comes together. Depending on who is doing the touching, our monster feels like drones and wiretaps or guns and chokeholds. But can we agree we're touching parts of the same elephant? It's not affecting all of us the same or all of us equally or all with the same result. But it's one big problem. From our government's urge to control global communications and punish dissent to our beat cop's demand for total submission and utter obedience, too many of us are being too policed, too brutally, with too little accountability to grievous effect on our shared body politic. Coming together could make us smarter quicker. In just one example, in an interview with The Nation magazine, NSA leaker Edward Snowden asked, the question is, particularly in the post-9-11 era, are societies becoming more liberal or more authoritarian? 
frontline communities of color in the U.S. could have answered that question right quick, and they might have suggested that 9-11 doesn't have much to do with it. Our elephant is authoritarianism. Describing it is nice. Now, if only those who've been feeling it tusk and trunk could feel their way towards one another and make common cause to tame it. This is Chris Ann from New Jersey. I'm calling partially regarding show number 889 regarding the injustice system and partially to relate a story and give an activist call to action. I currently follow the Ocean County Police Blotter Facebook page. For reference, this is the Jersey Shore and contains towns like Point Pleasant Beach and the infamous Seaside Heights. I typically follow this page for local information such as traffic accidents, water main breaks, and reporting of local crime. However, recently this page has turned very political posting stories about protests, but referring to protesters as, quote, cop haters. They posted a story in support of a locally owned restaurant that had the poor taste to light their marquee with the phrase, quote, I obey the law, I can breathe, unquote. I have routinely responded to their despicable posts by pointing out how they are adding fuel to the fire and not demonstrating the leadership required of those in their position in the community. They have thus far not responded to my protests, but they have banned my dad when he escalated the rhetoric to get their attention. My activist call to action is to follow the Facebook pages of your local police department. Monitor and respond to their posts they make, especially if they are inappropriate and do not advance the conversation. Better yet, follow the Ocean County Police Blotter Facebook page and barrage them with comments about their inappropriate and pathetic posts. Thank you so much. As my dad always told me, when you see something wrong, speak up, speak loud, and make sure you're heard. Keep up the fight. Hey, Jay, this is uh, Ian from Chattanooga. Love the podcast, first off. I was listening to the recent show uh, on the injustice system, and I was just thinking, uh, someone mentioned how uh, a lot of uh, hedge funds are invested in the prison industrial complex, for-profit prisons. And uh, it got me thinking about how the Rockefellers recently talked about divesting from oil companies. Why isn't there a movement to get hedge funds out of the prison industrial complex? Why, why isn't there a movement to try and get these big companies out of the game of criminalizing and jailing young people, whether they be young people of color or just young people in general? Seems like that'd be the, the perfect cause celebra for for just about anybody. Uh, it's just an idea. Thought I'd pass it along. Thanks again for the show. It turns out we did an activism segment about this almost exactly a year ago. Here's what I had to say about it. Colorofchange.org is following the divestment strategy being utilized successfully by groups like 350.org to tell the leadership of corporations supporting private prisons that private prisons are bad business. You can find their thorough but to-the-point letter on their homepage and under their campaign tab. Join with Color of Change, whose stated goal is to, quote, make government more responsive to the concerns of black Americans and to bring about positive political and social change for everyone, unquote. Adding your voice to their growing chorus takes less than a minute and helps tremendously. Hi, um, my name is Laurel. I'm calling from Atlanta. I just wanted to emphasize the connection between capitalism and the subjugation of people of color. This has come up in the last few episodes. I noticed you've been alternating between episodes about race and then episodes about money. And I feel like those two things are very interconnected, um, particularly in relation to the prison industrial complex, which has been talked about on your show. But I don't think this is the only example of the relation between capital and race. Um, there's neocolonialism. There is, um, you know, just the subjugation of the poor, which is, um, you know, disproportionately people of color and so on and so forth. Um, so 
in relation to this comment, I just wanted to share some books that I think some of your listeners might be interested in that deal with this issue. Um, first is Charles Mills' The Racial Contract that essentially rewrites the idea that democracy is a social contract, arguing that the evolution of democratic societies is completely interwoven with colonialism. Next is Stephen Best's The Fugitive Properties, in which he looks at the legal status of the slave as a form of property, not personhood, and the theoretical, social, and political implications of that status. And um, finally, there's Carol Boyce Davies' biography of Claudia Jones called Left of Karl Marx about a black female activist in the 1930s who integrated communist ideas with the fight for racial equality decades before the civil rights movement. Um, I don't want to go too long, but I did want to sh- add a short comment about the repeated appeals by listeners about education being the solution to many of the issues um, that have been talked about on your podcast. I am an educator, so uh, this is something I wholeheartedly agree with and I'm very interested in. But I've been following the slow dismantling of the public education system, particularly in states like Texas, the anti-intellectual sentiment that has taken over our country, particularly in Congress, and the resegregation of American schools um, in urban uh, environments in the South, and but all over the country. Um, I'm in Georgia, which is ranked 51st in the country if you count Puerto Rico. So, you know, I, I don't know that education is the solution that we're going to ho- we're hoping it will be. So, I, I would really love to hear you do an episode about the state of education in this country because I think that's a really important issue that um, needs to be touched on. Okay, love the show. Thank you. For all my most recent episodes on education, you can find these in the archives on the website. Uh, Episodes number 794, 820, 842, and 871. And then as a bonus, episode 775 is also on the topic, but it's not on the website. It was a whole thing. It's on the old website. The archives didn't make the jump to the new website. So you can't find that one on the current website. But I will put a link, like a direct download link to that uh, show in the show notes of this episode. That was number 775, and it's actually my school-to-prison pipeline episode, which bridges the gap between both of these subjects. Hey, Jay, this is Fisher from Buffalo, New York. First, I want to extend a tremendous thank you. I was just listening to the last show, The System is Built to Fall, and the injustice that's been happening in America. And I think your show does a tremendous job with leading us on the pathway toward racial equality because I think it's necessary to just put it out there and make these arguments and that people can actually hear. But I have to make a one point about this apartheid America I've been living in. And I may seem laid back and I'm good because I see horror after horror in a system that kills children with impunity. Children, you know? It's just absolutely frightening. And being a black man, I see every year how far the playing board's being pulled away from me. You know, I watch fake outrage every day when the GOP seeks the support of white supremacists. That doesn't surprise us. That doesn't surprise me. But nonetheless, bro, keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Make them aware. Make us aware. You know, I learned from your show. You give a lot. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, in a previous episode I did on you know surveillance and, and the struggle to maintain some sense of privacy in this day and age... You know, we, we've tried to do activism segments to give people tools to minimize the effect or, or the impact of governments and corporations constantly trying to track everything you do. And when we did that in the past, we thought to ourselves, you know, Katie and I were discussing it, and we thought, like, clearly some organization needs to do all of this research for us and then compile like a, you know, a worksheet or something that you can just go through. Here are all of the programs you should use. Here are all the best practices. Here is some software. Here is some encryption, all of those sorts of things. And then 
I don't know, a few weeks or a few months later, that exact thing came into existence. And I, you know, I found this and I sent it to Katie. I said, perfect. Like, this is exactly what we were looking for. Let's hang on to that for the next time we do, uh, you know, a, a spine episode. She said, great, perfect. And then we promptly, I, I presume, at least for myself, completely forgot about it. And then today's activism segment was not about that at all because <laughs> we did activism on legislation or, well, uh, an executive order to try to stop mass surveillance. Very worthy cause. But that action came from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which reminded me that that is the same group that came up with uh, this packet of information that they've put online, helping people through the process of protecting themselves from spying, tracking, all of those sorts of things. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, which you should be, and everyone should be, uh, what you were looking for is called the Surveillance Self-Defense at EFF.org. And so the website, if you want to go directly to it, is SSD for Surveillance Self-Defense, SSD.EFF.org. And it, it just sort of walks you through, you know, who are you? What, uh, you know, what computer do you use? And if this is what you have, then these are the programs you need. And it walks you through the entire process, lots of details and so on. Of course, you know, an introduction to threat monitoring. Uh, they teach you how to, you know, communicate with others, keeping your data safe, creating strong passwords and so on and so on. So if this episode and all the others I've done on the topic haven't made it clear enough, uh, we need to take individual action to create sort of a critical mass in society where it is not easy or even cost-effective for governments to try to hack into everything we're doing, track everything we do, and so on. And so this is exactly what we need for at least what we do online, uh, you know, being tracked by our uh, license plates, maybe a slightly different issue, but uh, but it's a good start. So again, that's the surveillance self-defense page at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I highly recommend checking that out. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member and making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the show survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained